Exploring the Burden of Freedom with James K.A. Smith. What I call these cracks in the secular are in some ways the stress fractures of the way we've tried to live a secular life, which has extolled, you know, a notion of freedom, for example, where it feels like, oh, we're free to do whatever we want. And yet, I wonder if now we're reaching a cultural moment where we're exhausted by that. We're, we're realizing the burden of that kind of freedom. So somebody says, you can do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. You can, you can make up your own version of significance. And we've tried that for a couple of generations. And I guess I see a number of young people who are starting to say, that's exhausting. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. Our guest is philosopher, professor, and author James K.A. Smith. He joined me before a talk at Fordham University's Center on Religion and Culture. Our modern world has a particular vision of what the pursuit of happiness means. Independence, self-efficiency, confronting the world and conforming the world to our desires. James K.A. Smith, philosopher, lecturer, prolific author, understands the attraction of such secular happiness, especially for young people. But he also detects what he calls cracks in the secular, signs of what can illuminate a different path to happiness. His new book is called On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality, for restless hearts. Jamie, uh, it's good to be with you. This I was reading from uh, an introduction to a speech you're going to be giving, and uh, that's big stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to ask you the hardest question first, which is, what are these cracks that you see in our society, and how can uh, Augustine, religion, etc., fill them? Yeah, I think... What I call these cracks in the secular are in some ways the stress fractures of the way we've tried to live a secular life, which has extolled, you know, a notion of freedom, for example, where it feels like, oh, we're free to do whatever we want. And yet I wonder if now we're reaching a cultural moment where we're exhausted by that. We're, we're realizing the burden of that kind of freedom. So somebody says, you can do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. You can, you can make up your own version of significance. And we've tried that for a couple of generations. And I guess I see a number of young people who are starting to say, that's exhausting. We're, we're depleted by this. Somebody give us a vision of how to live well. Somebody give us something that we feel called to. And uh, in that way, I think people are kind of open to reconsidering modes of life, modes of transcendence, significance that we might have thought were outdated, but are sort of reemerging as, as possible, viable, live options for how to live. Well, uh one of the uh, one of the old uh, famous Jewish jokes is um, what makes God laugh, man's plans. Are you pushing against that uh, uh, that thought too? That in many ways uh, God is still in charge. Yeah, and I and I think um, yes. I think also pushing back on this sense that we could just write our own stories. 
and we could come up with an ending that would make it meaningful. And and I I think we are we're realizing that what pretends to be liberty and freedom um, is maybe more dissipating and and we sort of get dissolved in, in what looks like opportunity and we kind of lose a center of who we are. And, and I think that's, God sort of calls from the other side of that and says, I, actually, here's, here's a good way to be human. And there's sort of norms and guardrails that you can live into that actually are conducive to our flourishing. They're not robbing from us. Well, can we unpack that a little bit? What do, what do you mean by all of this? Are you saying that religion gives us this framework, the Bible gives us this framework, and uh, that helps uh, that helps us get through? I mean, I, I don't want to reduce religion to some sort of pragmatic, oh, this works for me. I, I, instead, I think what, what someone like St. Augustine testifies to is you know he he spent a life thinking he could do whatever he want and and looking for happiness in all the wrong places and and what he realized and in in an interesting way he kind of got everything he was looking for and then realized that didn't feel like happy that didn't feel like fullness and and i think it's because uh, what what religion testifies to and 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 for augustine what what christianity testifies to is that human beings are these full-orbed creatures who are made for a certain end. You know, he, he famously said, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And, and I think it's that sense of what, what, what a religious vision reminds us of is that we have souls. That they, there's a part of us that has hungers that is deeper than any finite thing could ever satisfy. And what would it look like to remember that about being human? Let me throw out a date. Does October 10th, 1988 mean anything to you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, in some ways, it was an intensely uh, private experience that day, but that, that was the day of my conversion. I, I, I'm the sort of person who has a story of, you know, not being religious, not being a Christian, and October 10 was the day where I sort of found myself in a new story, uh, and that was a pivot point for me. And that was the day that led you to the study of religion and your philosophy and all. I mean, you're really a genuine uh, religious scholar. Uh, and what happened on that day that, you know, that, that lit you on fire? Yeah, I, I mean, on, on a baseline level, what happened was I think I finally found what story I was supposed to live into. I, I think I, I finally discovered who I was made for. But then one of the follows of that almost immediately was, you know, I, I had spent my whole life, I was a jock, I rode BMX bikes, you know, I was, I, I, I didn't care about the life of the mind at all. I think I had read one book in all of high school. I was a terribly recalcitrant student, but it was like when I uh, became a Christian, all of a sudden all these lights went on for me intellectually. And also I guess I realized I had, gifts and callings that I would never have known about myself. So if you had asked me on October 9th, 1988, what I imagined my future would be, it was so radically different from what it is, is turned out to be. And I think that's, um, it, it's almost like it unlocked facets of me that I had buried somehow. Well, it's interesting because you had that spark, that moment on October 10th, 88, you don't hear too much about that 
in 2020, 2019, 2021 uh, in young people anymore, uh, especially organized religion and, uh, and even Christianity in general don't seem to be on the upswing. They seem to be uh, uh, disappearing or going down. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so I, I think there are some mixed reports in this regard, but, but it's, it's partly about, so how do we read this moment? And this is another example of what we talked about, these cracks in the secular. I, I understand the exodus from institutional religion for a lot of reasons. On the other hand, you can take a snapshot of that current moment in which we find ourselves and ask yourselves if we're not already reaching the the sort of U-turn moment. And that's what I'm seeing in more and more young people is actually, okay, they've been told for their whole lives they can do whatever they want, they can be whatever they want. And yet what I'm noticing is more and more are sort of attuned to religious callings that are also asking a lot of them and and are inviting them into a religion and a community that's embodied, that's relational, that is sort of asking something of them. And I, I don't think the story is just continued secularization in that regard. And uh, I, I notice a lot of openings to the possibility being otherwise. Yes, uh, one of our previous guests had indicated that the school, the colleges are uh, colleges like yours, small religious institutions are really the ones that are on the grow uh, more than uh, some of the others. And they're schools that are chosen by young people who want the liturgy, who want the parameters, who want the direction. They don't want the absolute freedom that the world seems to be, the secular world seems to be clamoring for. And we also notice, this this is another, it's a story to be explored, I think, by journalists, we're also noticing that those who are converting, for example, to Christianity, uh, actually Catholicism in particular, I would say, are coming from what we might, what the culture might think of as the young, elite, educated class. And, and there's a, a lot of interesting data right now that actually says it's elite, educated intellectuals who attend religious services more than sort of typical middle class uh, and uh, working class is still a mixed story for, for a, a lot of reasons. But there's something, that's why another reason why I think a figure like St. Augustine is so kind of intriguing for our current cultural moment because this was, he was an intellectual giant who had all kinds of intellectual ambition. And it was precisely when achieving those intellectual goals didn't, give him what he was looking for, that he started looking around and wondering, is there maybe more to it than this? Uh, in your book uh, uh, and in your various writings, you talk about the difference to, between the kind of Benedictine option and the Augustine option. Can you talk a little about what that means? Yeah, so the the Benedict option is, has gotten a lot of play. Let's say for our purposes, it tends to be a, a slightly reactionary rendition of Christianity for the most part, which, which imagines uh, we've lost the culture war. Let's get in our ark, sail to somewhere safe and protected um, so that we can guard the faith. So it's, it's a very protectionist uh, um, retreat-like posture. Uh, 
that that does not square with Augustine's vision of what Christianity calls us to. I, for, for a couple reasons. One is I think Augustine thinks Christianity is the true humanism. So he, he, you can't sort of deny human involvement and investment in that regard. But he also thinks being called to love our neighbors means you have to be in the world. You have to be alongside the earthly city. You have to plant yourself there and, and labor alongside your neighbors. And so it's a much more... It's a picture of an engaged, collaborative, ad hoc way of being faithful amidst the mess and mix. And also realizing that you have something to learn from those neighbors that you ultimately disagree with. So instead of that kind of purity ideal of retreating to the fortress, the ark, uh, the, the, the monastery, it's actually one of a, an engaged faith that's in the mix of things and is trying to serve neighbors and institutions for just that reason. One of the most uh, intellectual people I know, Vartan Gregorian, who is the uh, now president of, uh, for many years, the Carnegie Foundation, before that uh, head of the New York Public Library and president of Brown University, a real intellectual. Matter of fact, so intellectual you rarely understand him, <laughs> even though maybe it's his accent. But at any rate, uh, I had been making movies, and he came to me, and he said, uh, and he, uh, he's a friend, and he said, Bill, the movie you should make is about Augustine. And I think, wow, you know, when somebody that smart uh, tells me that Augustine is a, a force even today in this uh, postmodern world, uh, what do you think of that? Yeah, uh, absolutely. He, there's something so perennial about Augustine. In, on a lot of levels. On the one hand, he is, he, he's honest that he's the, the prototypical provincial who goes to the center of the empire looking for accomplishment, notoriety, achievement, conquest, and it, and it doesn't work for him. It doesn't, it doesn't satisfy. That's, that's the ongoing theme that Augustine shares with us in his confessions is deep hungers and aspirations for meaning, for significance, for fullness, for satisfaction, and and the incessant disappointment of all the things he collects and achieves in his life not filling that for him until he's confronted by a God who, who wants to be everything and all and, and that he's folded into. So Augustine, I think Augustine's the first existentialist. I think when we, we and there's actually a really interesting philosophical subtext to how we've inherited Augustine, Augustine through existentialism. But if you, if you just think of our whole quest of finding ourselves, that is the Augustinian quest. The, 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 maybe the partly scandalous answer that Augustine gives is, it's not, I find myself when, when I am found, <laughs> when I'm found by the God who welcomes me. And um, I, I think it's an incredibly human story. I do think it deserves to be a screenplay. I want Terrence Malick to make the movie. I, I think it would be an incredible uh, um, drama, in a sense. Well, Augustine, uh, too, is, uh, uh, is one of those thinkers that's really, though for at least me, very hard to take, very hard to process, uh, because it is so deep and so complicated. Um, and you had actually talked about how he fits into uh, postmodern, uh, postmodern religious and philosophical thinking, and you're critical of postmodern religious and philosophical thinking to a degree. 
Uh, to a degree. I mean, actually, in in many ways, I, I'm less critical of sort of some postmodern themes and emphases uh, than you might guess, because I actually think post the postmodern moment helped disabuse us of some really bad moves we made in modernity. So I, I actually think modernity is is much more the problem. And we sort of climbed into bed with Descartes and, and we sort of ended up with these very reductionistic pictures of the human person. I think postmodernism criticizes that. And I actually think that's much more of an ally of an Augustinian faith um, than it is an enemy, actually. Um. The second to the last chapter of your book is about uh, Augustine and death and his thinking on and writings on death. Um, will you share some of that with us? Yeah, I mean, um, at the end of the day, Augustine thinks the human condition has to confront this wake-up call of mortality. And um, for Augustine that's about the hope of resurrection, right? This, this is about a very embodied hope of a, a life that is lived as a creature uh, ongoing. And, and I think, I do wonder if Christianity is, and, and, and Augustine's rendition of Christianity is more honest about our mortality than our current cultural moment is. I, I think we live in a very death-denying culture. I think we live in a culture that tries to distract us from the fact that we're going to die. I think it tries to forestall our death as long as we possibly can. I think it has, it's a cult of youth. And um, all of those things are not true. They're just, they're just, those are, death is an ineradicable aspect of the human condition and experience and I think someone like Augustine is more honest about that and I think Christianity you know there's some almost morbid parts of Christianity that deals with relics and you know and yet that's human that's actually uh, uh, helping us to remember something about the human condition can we talk a little about liturgy and uh, how important or unimportant that might be in this world that we live in I, I think we are I think all human beings are liturgical creatures. I, I think we are ritual animals. I, I, I think we, we can't live without the rhythms of ritual. So it's not a question of whether you have a liturgy, it's which liturgy and what you're learning to worship and all of that. And, and it's one of the reasons why I think what Augustine introduces you to is this kind of full-orbed, practiced form of Christianity, where it's not just about getting a message, it's not just about believing a doctrine or a dogma, it's actually about being invited into a community of faith that lives these, this repertoire, this story. I, I think liturgy is best understood as a kind of enacted scripted story about who we are and whose we are and um again i actually think this is something that really resonates with young people it's not it's not just you know putting in your earbuds and getting the podcast that tells you what you should think or what you should believe it's the messiness and grittiness of living in community together and and um yeah rehearsing the faith in such a way that it starts to sink down into your bones and it gets under your skin and it becomes part of the fabric of who you are. Now, you've written many books and you've done a lot of thinking and writing and speaking. Um, do you feel this kind of Augustan 
moment <laughs> for you is your pinnacle, or, or do you think do you, do you think this is the, you know the, you know this is this is this is where the action really is? Yeah, it's, um, I'm worried because it would mean I'm going to die soon or have a very boring <laughs> later life. Um, in some ways, I do feel like I've been writing this book for 20 years, only because for me, someone like Augustine is is this great co-pilgrim to walk with because. He's this intellectual giant that I keep learning from. As a philosopher, as an intellectual, he's sort of an exemplar that I aspire to imitate in, in minuscule ways. But um, I don't think the book means that I'm done with Augustine or that Augustine is done with me. But I do think it sort of, it maybe releases me to now go on and try to carry on his legacy and, and project, but in new areas and in, in new ways. Um, but in some ways I do... Uh, although maybe I've said this about other books, but I kind of feel like this was the book I was born to write. <laughs> um, and yet it's also a book that has written me. It, it, it's, it's a project that found me. Uh, no, not least because I think God surprised me in putting this on my radar. You know, I, I wouldn't have imagined. I, I went to study um, German philosophy at Villanova University and went to study Heidegger and ended up meeting Augustine and that's been one of the great graces in my life uh, a last question and that has to do with politics and the intersection of religion and politics you've had something to say about that over the years your thoughts yeah <laughs> um, interestingly I mean Augustine wrote this mammoth tome called the city of God which is really about religion and politics and and uh, I do I, I would like to commend it to some of our so-called leadership in this country, mostly because especially those who call themselves Christians, because I think what Augustine counsels is our tendency to idolize politics, to make to imagine that we are going to save ourselves by our political machinations. And uh, Augustine just um, wants to break those idols and crush those idols. That said, I don't think the solution of the the political turmoil of our moment is to retreat from politics either. I don't think I don't think we have the liberty or the luxury of retreating from the mess of forging a common life together. I, I think what we can hope for is that um, more and better people answer that call, <laughs> so that we could reimagine what our our life in common would be. Yes. Uh you, your actual background was Canadian. You're, uh, you were born in Canada, raised in Canada, early education in Canada. Um, do you feel, and, I, and you're now an American citizen, and I assume Canadian as well, um, uh, do you see a real difference there in the way religion plays out in, in these two neighbors? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, um, in some ways, you know, people call Canada America Junior, but it's radically different in this regard, um, partly because it's just such a fundamentally different story of its founding, right? And so uh, the different founding stories of the United States mean that um, religion weaves itself into our public discourse and our public identities uh, in ways that don't shake out as they do in Canada. It's probably also just the case that there's not near the power of religious institutions uh, in a Canadian context. It's not an established church like the UK. 
uh, and then there, but there isn't this vibrant, humongous civil society like you have in the United States. And so um, it's a much more tepid experience in that regard. And um, it's not necessarily better, it's different. Um, it has its own challenges, Can Canadian secularization. Quebec is always a very, very interesting counterpoint to this. Um, so we've made our home here, we're invested in the American project, uh, but keep hoping to imagine better ways for us to do this. I've loved Canada over the years and, uh, and, the, and the Canadian people and the kind of special place that is. And, uh, and I've also seen how many of them have done, uh, have, have, have done religious things that have spread around the world. You know, uh, uh, Jean Vanier is a, is a very good example. Absolutely. Uh, Vanier's influence is, is such a wonderful testament uh, uh, of a, a religious sensibility that, that's there. In Canada, too, the one thing that Canada does a little bit better is the way it honors and recognizes First Nations peoples. And one of the things that's really intriguing in Canada is that Christians are much more allies of First Nations peoples in, in really uh, strong advocating ways. And um, I think that's, that's harder to run into here in the American context. James K.A. Smith, thank you for being with us. It's been so great, thanks for the conversation. Our guest was philosopher, professor, and author James K.A. Smith. This episode was brought to you with the production assistance from David Gibson of Fordham University's Center on Religion and Culture. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thank you for listening.